Welcome to What the Risk, Exposing Business Blind Spots, an interview-based podcast series that discusses risk management topics. Have you ever been blindsided in a business situation? Think about your entire computer system going down, a supplier that cannot deliver, or your biggest customer declaring bankruptcy, or your new marketing strategy completely missing the mark. These are visceral what-the-risk moments. Your exact words may be different, but the feeling is the same. When everyone's eyes are focused on the next sale, high-impact, low-visibility risks often get overlooked. We call these blind spots, and these blind spots cause what-the-risk moments. I am your host, Larry Gordon of Gordon Risk Solutions. Join us on this journey as we learn to ask the right questions, expose potential pitfalls, and empower you to turn the what-the-risk moments into I've Got This victories. Our guests today to talk about intellectual property are two lawyers from the Ulmer Law Firm. Uh, We have Rachel Rodman and Matt Schonauer. Matt is a practicing attorney focused on intellectual property preparation and prosecution of domestic and international patent applications. He serves as an advisor to pre-revenue and growth startups, and he practiced mechanical engineering before he became an attorney with experience in printed circuit boards, software development, and mechanical product design industries. He's also well-published in intellectual property. Our second guest is Rachel Rodman. She's an IP litigator representing clients of all types of intellectual property litigation, including patent, trademark, copyright, trade secret claims, and forms across the United States. She's recognized in the World Trademark Review, WTR 1000, as one of the world's leading trademark professionals. She's also named into the Ohio Super Lawyers list. We welcome both of them for a very informative session. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So you both work in intellectual property, but you have very different roles in that. If you can talk a little bit about the different roles you have and describe what the differences are. Uh, Matt, let's start with you. what areas of IP kind of do you focus on? Do you have a specialty within that? And then I saw something about what you do for Amazon Marketplace. So if you can talk about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so I I do focus on sort of procurement and management of IP assets at the formation stage and the identification stage. Um, I have I have uh, I, I'm a registered patent attorney, so I can prosecute patents, um, but I also I also uh, will register trademarks and copyrights, um, kind of the the whole the whole kit there um, when it comes to that. So I don't I don't necessarily focus on one of those areas. I try to take a holistic approach. That's probably the focus of what I do. I mean, I've done some enforcement, Rachel, a lot more than I have. So uh, I'm happy to have her now uh, to lean on and and get her expertise uh, with my practice. And um, so procurement, um, identification of IP, and then um, you mentioned the Amazon Marketplace stuff. So I have I have several clients um, in the Amazon and other third. I mean, third party marketplaces in general are pretty popular now. I mean, you've got Amazon and Alibaba are like the two big ones, but there's others. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of independent sellers on there that have a lot of IP issues, whether it's Hey, somebody's selling a patented product of mine on those marketplaces, or somebody's knocking off my uh, my trademarks, or you know, it really there's really a lot of issues that can come. And because it's a private marketplace, it's not it's not a you know you can there are mechanisms in some of those marketplaces where you can 
you know, try to enforce your rights, but really getting them in order first to be able to enforce them is really important, especially when it comes to like Amazon. They have a brand registry where if you don't have formal IP rights already, they really don't help you very much. They just kind of say, well, you're out of luck and, you know, good luck with that. So, Well, very good. Yeah. So, Rachel, if you can tell us more about your litigation practice, and I'm looking forward to a lot of war stories through this whole uh, session. Uh, and help us understand kind of if there's particular industries you focus on, kind of your level of practices and mostly kind of the mediation pre-trial, trial, appellate. Sure. So um, as Matt said, I do IP enforcement. So that is overwhelmingly um, the biggest part litigation um, and federal court litigation. And I litigate all types of IP, like we said, patents, trademarks, copyrights, trade dress, trade secrets, um, and any sort of nuance of those that you could fathom, um, mostly in federal court, but also in a number of other forums, things like the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board, if somebody is you know, filing an opposition to an issued trademark or a trademark application, um, the you know Patent Trial and Appeal Board for things like Interparties Reviews to Challenge Patents, the ITC, which is the International <coughs> Trademark Commission, which deals with um, preventing the import of um, at customs of in, of anything really, but things violating intellectual property. Um, sometimes in state court, although that's rare for intellectual property. Um, and then even, you know, things like, like Matt was talking about, you know, some of the mechanisms for the online sellers like Amazon, you get involved in some of those. Uh, so any type of IP litigation in any forum I handle. Um, I also handle things like licensing, um, which is in the bucket really of enforcing IP, making sure that you're getting um, appropriate royalties for your IP, or if you need to license somebody else's IP, what does that relationship look like? And then um, the only time I really get involved in kind of pre-litigation planning is on the trade secret side, where I, I've done quite a number of audits of trade secrets in their protection for companies to ensure that if they find themselves in litigation, they're well set up for what that litigation might look like. Well, very good. Very good. So as we get into the meat of this, I do want to make sure that we let, get to know you kind of professionally. Do you have any things that you've worked on recently or currently working on that excite you? Um, I'm always working on things that excite me. Um, Matt and I just filed a case yesterday that's a trade mm -hmm. secret case. We're not going to we can't talk about the details too much yet, but it's going to be a fun trade secret case, I think. Um, I've got a patent case that's been ongoing for years, as patent cases often are, that's set for trial next year. So we're sort of in the final um, motion practice, getting ready for trial of that, which is exciting. We don't do very many trials in IP litigation anymore because it's so expensive. So whenever we get this far, that's always a lot of fun for me. I don't know how fun the clients find it, but I, as a litigator, <laughs> that's why you hire me, because I find it fun. Very good. What are you working on, Matt? So I have a variety of clients that are launching successful products um, and the, it really to an international market. So right now, currently, I'm coordinating some pretty, pretty quick buildup of IP on a, on a national, international level. So trying to coordinate with uh, foreign associates. So we have, we have other law firms in different countries that we work closely with because all IP is, is, is really territorial in nature and due to, you know, treaties between all the many of the most of the industrialized countries in the world uh you have to have ip rights in each location where you're going to be doing business um so 
Uh, I'm doing a lot of that right now, just kind of coordinating and being prepared so that we can stamp out, knock off counterfeit products before they flood the market, which is once that starts happening, it gets more difficult. So being prepared for that kind of thing when you know what's going to happen really gives you a leg up. So I'm doing a lot of that right now. Well, terrific. So as we talk about the risks and strategies of intellectual property, I want to make sure from a context perspective, our audience are going to be business owners, business leaders that want to understand how to protect and defend and kind of think about the asset that they have. And they're going to be in companies from retail to service, manufacturing, entertainment. We also have a lot of people that listen that are lenders or investors that want to understand what are the right questions to ask, because if they don't understand what they're being told, well, then that's bad on them. I want to make sure that they have the context to ask the right questions. So with that as context, let's do a quick level set, and it's probably more in your camp, Matt, uh, the different types of intellectual property protections and what the process is for businesses. Yeah. Uh, So as we kind of alluded to earlier, the four main types, uh, there's kind of four buckets of IP, traditional IP. Um, You've got patents, trademarks, copyrights, and and, uh, trade secrets. So patents... Uh, there's three types of patents, utility, design, and plant. Most people think of utility patents when we talk about patents. They make up, I don't know, three-quarters or more of probably all issued patents. Mm-hmm. Um, a patent covers a an article of manufacture, a process, a method of doing something, um, it, re- really a, a, a product or, or a way of, of accomplishing something. It sort of protects the product and the idea behind the product. Um, the uh, trademarks, on the other hand, they, they, are, they are source identifying protection kind of IP. So it's, it kind of arose out of the common law and, and business torts and saying that, hey, you know, somebody shouldn't be able to come along and call their business the same thing as my business to trade off of the goodwill that I've built up in the marketplace. So those have their roots in use, but uh, there's a registration system that gives you more rights and you can kind of keep protection around your brand. Um, so those are those really cover anything. Typically, we think of names or logos, but really it's you can protect under trademark law anything that it operates to identify the source of goods or services. So that can include things like sound, like the NBC three-tone jingle that that is a registered trademark copyrights protect creative expression and the works of creative expression so these things will typically cover things like uh literary works um motion pictures music sound recordings architectural works sculptural works all those kind of things anything that there's some kind of expression being put into some end product that you can tangibly you know see um, and then trade secret protection is uh, it's a, a legal framework that that lets you try to uh, keep the products like of you, the important things to your business secret and um, protect that from being kind of unauthorized uh, exfiltration of you know th- things that are commercially valuable to your company. So if you take take those kind of steps to protect it. And like Rachel said, she does a lot of that. So she can probably, you know, elaborate on that a little bit more, but those are the four, those are the four main areas that we kind of look at at first when we talk to a client. So when a business owner is running and operating their, their company, 
And how should they be thinking about looking at everything they do? Should they be kind of logging everything? Should they be figuring out, okay, do I have to sit down with my attorney to say, okay, what's protectable here? Or kind of how do I kind of file for this? How should a business owner think about kind of next steps? So, um, you know, I, I, I represent clients that kind of run the range of sophistication in, in their knowledge of what is IP and how can I identify it and how is it useful to my business. So depending on kind of where you are in the spectrum, you know, I like to come in and say, look, I, it, it, the more that I know about your business and that I really understand your goals and what drives your revenue and, you know, where, what, where your expertise lies, then I can help you identify where's the proper investment to be made here. Because, you know, we don't want to be spending money on protecting things that don't give us a return. Right. So, so, I mean, I always encourage people to, hey, let's just sit down and have a conversation and let me just learn about your business and we can identify some some um, like a plan going forward, a more holistic IP protection that has a roadmap and gives you some guidelines on how to identify IP as it's created and how to um, you know avoid risks down the road now um, instead of later when it's a big a big problem. So, okay, and how should when you go through that process, how should someone value what they have and go, when they're kind of doing that trade-off going, do I spend and invest on the front end for this, or is this something that I kind of get away with and not worry about right now? Yeah, so to to, to a large extent, some of that answer is going to come from me once I understand your business and say, hey, look, this is the risks are here, you know, I can identify these risks for you, how big they are, how how important they are to you in the future, and how, so, so we can kind of determine how much to invest now. So um, it's it's a, it's kind of complex sometimes depending on what the business does. So it's hard to give like one answer about that. But um, the, really, if you if you want kind of a general answer, that it's always going to be what drives your revenue. Can we identify the IP related to that? revenue uh, because that's really what we're trying to protect. What What is, what's valuable to your business? Should business owners be kind of on a routine basis budgeting for intellectual property protection? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a champion of the, the, of the budget. Like, so just at least have some kind of budget for IP, even if it's, Hey, we're going to sit down every 12 months and kind of talk about what you're doing, what has changed you know, is there anything there that we need to worry about? Do you have concerns? Um, at least to that level. And then um, it should sort of, you know, grow with your business so that you can protect the things that are valuable to you. But I always I always encourage people to at least have a little bit of budget there because we can avoid really large expenses and problems for your business if we, if we get involved early and know what's going on. Well, terrific. So... Um, we've talked through the foundational pieces, kind of the basic blocking and tackling, figuring out what's going on. Now, when we turn to Rachel, if you're not doing those things properly, losing control of your value because somebody else is either trying to jump in or do it or steal it or uh, copy you, kind of let's jump to you and find out kind of how you approach kind of the cleanup. Right. So, I, you know, so there are really sort of two types of litigation or they fall into two buckets. Um, one is 
everybody did everything right, and there's just a legal issue that smart people disagree on. Um, and those cases are probably a small percentage. And generally, the what's driving the litigation is that somebody did something wrong. Um, you know, somebody is infringing on somebody else's IP because they weren't careful about what they were doing on the front end and didn't realize that the other IP existed. Um, somebody is trying to enforce their IP and they've got themselves in a situation where it's not clear cut enough to just avoid the litigation. Um, now they've got to litigate it because there's a question about whether they actually own IP that they're trying to enforce. Um, you know, generally what what drives litigation and what drives a lot of what I do is that people missed things on the front end. Um, people made mistakes on the front end. So when if they make the mistakes on the front end, kind of then they call you and say, Hey, I, I'm trying to kind of put this genie back in the bottle. Yes. And so when you, and it's probably not as easy from a cost perspective, like going to a car accident uh, person to say, hey, can you take this on contingency? It's probably a lot more complex than that. It is a lot more complex. And, and depending upon the issue, sometimes you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Um, you know, you have situations where you know, we talked about trade secrets, for example, which trade secrets um, I love to talk about because trade secrets are the one form of IP that I can say confidently every single business has. You may or may not know that you have them. You may or may not be paying attention to them, um, but you have them. Um, and what makes a trade secret, unlike the other types of IP where you send off to the government and you get a certificate saying that you own this trade secret, what defines a trade secret is that it's information, any type of information, that is subject to reasonable steps to keep it secret and that has an independent economic value from being secret. And so the, the trick there is, are you taking reasonable steps to keep your trade secrets secret? And if you're not, it's definitional. You don't have a trade secret. You have information that might be subject to a confidentiality agreement. You might have employment claims if somebody takes something inappropriately or some type of civil theft claim, but you don't have a trade secret claim. So on the front end, you have to be looking at, am I taking reasonable steps, reasonable for my business, for the size of my business, for the the annual revenue of my business, for the type of business, for the type of trade secrets? Am I taking reasonable steps to protect those trade secrets? Because if you're not, somebody could come in under cover of darkness with the worst misappropriation facts you've ever seen, but you don't have a trade secret claim because you don't have a trade secret. Um, and I can't put that genie back in the bottle, right? Like Once you've publicly disclosed it, once you've not taken reasonable steps, it's not a trade secret forever. Um, you know, you, have, you see things in other types of IP, you know, some of the the patent type things that if it turns out, you know, you were, you know, using it or publicly disclosing it a certain amount of time before filing, um, you might get the patent, but that patent's going to be invalidated because you shouldn't have. Um, if it turns out you didn't do your due diligence and find the prior art, you know, you're going to, you're going to be dealing with a patent that's not really worth very much. And, you know, maybe you got it through the USPTO and you got your patent, but you're going to have trouble in litigation. Um, you know, trade se or trademarks, I've seen people, um, you know, you come up with a great business name and you want to enforce it because somebody's stealing your business name, but you've never used it, right? Trademarks are, as, as Matt said, defined by use in commerce. And so trademarks, I think I said trade secrets, they're defined by use in commerce. <laughs> trade secrets are very much not defined by use in <laughs> commerce. Um, trademarks are defined by use in commerce. And so if you're not using it. If you're, you know, you're a startup, you're coming up with a name and somebody takes your name, it's not a trademark. Nobody owns that trademark. 
So if you have not, you know, taken steps to file an intent to use application to make sure that down the road within a certain amount of time, you're going to be using your trademark, then you find yourself in a situation where you're trying to enforce trademark rights and there's literally no trademark. So, um, you know, things that just people don't think through on the front end because everybody's getting along and everything's going well and you just assume you're the eternal optimist. And then when things do start to go wrong, sometimes it's too late to fix them. So when someone is developing their business and is becoming successful, how do they kind of from the basic blocking and tackling protect those trade secrets as they're being developed? Is there a kind of a basic playbook that they should be following? Yeah, so I like to think about trade secret prote protection in really kind of four main buckets. Um, so bucket one is your electronic security, right? And you're sending emails, you've got things saved on your computer, do you have passwords? Is everybody able to access the same things all the time? And you want to make sure you're, you're password protecting things, you're encrypting things, you are um, sort of controlling where things live electronically, making sure that people, uh, that access is limited to the people who need to have access only to the extent they need to have access and only as long as they need to have access. You know, I've seen situations where somebody has a, a company has a universal password that everybody uses and everybody has access to everything. And that's, that's not going to fly for anything but the smallest of companies. Um, the second bucket would be physical security, right? Are you locking the doors? Do you have a security system? Do you have a fence? Are you making sure people aren't going through your trash? You know, just kind of the basics um, your or your keys to the kingdom trade secrets locked behind a different door, or are they in an open filing cabinet where you know, visitors could walk in and grab them? What does your physical security look like? Um, then you're going to have um, issues with employees. Like employees actually end up being the biggest risk to trade secrets, not always intentionally. You know, we know the stories of sort of the employees stealing things, but what happens is, you know, employees are trying to do the best for the company. But what your salespeople think is the best thing for the company and what your R&D people think is the best thing for the company are going to be two very different things. So you need to be communicating to your employees and making sure you have agreements with your employees that control what they're doing with your trade secrets. And then the last bucket is going to be sort of third parties. You know, what are you doing with your vendors? What are you doing with your customers? What access do they have to your trade secrets? And if you shore up those four pillars... Um, and think about what's reasonable for those four pillars, you're going to be going a long way toward making sure that you're protecting your trade secrets. And I will tell you that every company I've ever looked at um, is has, has flaws in at least one of those, right? And what's reasonable for your Fortune 50 company is not the same thing as what's reasonable for, you know, a startup that has five employees. It's going to depend on what's reasonable for you as a company, and, and that's ultimately going to be a fact issue for a jury. So you want to just make sure that you're thinking about it. You know, how are we protecting this? We're not just doing what's expedient. So is there a risk-reward process that a business owner should go through to not only when they're trying up front, but also when they're trying to enforce? Um, yeah, for both, yes, there is. I mean, on the upfront side, you know, taking like protection of trade secrets, for example, you know, everybody could turn their company into Fort Knox, but that's not going to be cost effective. It's not going to be a good risk benefit analysis for a small company, right? Um, and, and sometimes it can be counterproductive that, you know, you take almost too many steps to protect trade secrets. And so people find workarounds and I have fun war stories about that. Um, so you've got to, you've got to ask, you know, sort of our business, the size of our business, you know, there's always going to be the absolute best gold standard. That's not going to be a reasonable thing for most businesses to do. You can't spend more to protect your trade secrets than your company's worth. So you've got to do the calculus of what makes sense for us right now. 
Does that change over time? Um, how, you know, what can we do reasonably to, to have some basic protection for our trade secrets? And a lot of it doesn't have to be expensive. It's not that expensive to have agreements with your employees. It's not expensive to have a password on your computer. It's not expensive to remember to turn on your security system at night. Um, and I've seen all of those things not happen. So, you know, those are things that's really hard to say on the back end that, you know, that wasn't a reasonable. If you already have the security system and you're not turning it on, that's bad on them. It's really hard yeah. for me to, to <laughs> prove that that's reasonable. You'd be better off if you didn't have the security system in the first place, right? Um, and then on the enforcement side, you know, we're always talking risk. You know, what, what's the what's the risk, which generally in enforcement is money? How much money are you going to spend in attorney's fees? You know, sometimes there's issues of publicity or issues of you're going to lose the IP that you're suing on because the court's going to find that your patent was invalid or, or um, something similar. Um, and then what's the potential benefit? You know, what's the remedy at the end of this? What, you know, when you're talking litigation, you always have to be asking, what is the remedy? What do I hope to get? Is it money? How much money? Do I want the competitor to have to stop selling the product? What does that look like for my bottom line? And, you know, taking those two calculuses into account, you know, what are my risks from a money, publicity, et cetera, standpoint versus what's the benefit? What do I stand to gain? You need what you stand to gain to be bigger than what you're going to spend, right? We don't want to spend $5 million on patent litigation to get $100,000 in damages. That would be, unless there are real strategic <clears throat> reasons to support that, that would not be a good business decision generally. So um, so that's the calculus. And then you, you take that into account along with what are your chances of success, which is going to depend on a lot of factors specific to the case. Oh, terrific. So you talked about war stories. Yes. Do you have one that kind of summarizes some of the issues you're talking about? Um, maybe a couple. So, you know, my, one of my favorite war stories on the trade secret protection side to help people understand what it means to kind of practically protect your trade secrets, because you're looking at it from the perspective of what's going to look good in litigation, right? What's going to sell to a jury that I took reasonable steps to protect my trade secrets. But you're also looking at it really from the standpoint of I don't actually want my trade secrets to walk out the door, because if they do, that's really bad. Um, and litigation is kind of a last resort after the damage has already been done, right? So in trying to determine how you're going to protect your trade secrets, you have to be practical. And, you know, what I see sometimes is, um, like I said, there's always some hole that I've seen Fortune 50 companies that don't have any agreements with vendors because it just sort of falls through the cracks of whose responsibility that is. Um, so you have sort of a whole pillar of where people can lose their trade secrets that's utterly unprotected. Or, um, you know, in their in their plants in other countries, they're leaving the back door open for airflow. And, you know, they know that there are people sniffing around. Um, one of my favorite war stories, though, is, you know, and I'm going to change details to protect the innocent. But imagine, <laughs> you know, you have a formula that is absolutely mission critical to your company. It is the trade secret for your company, this formula, this recipe, you know, what what goes into your product. And it is so important that you're keeping it locked in a safe in a separate facility from where your employees work. So if they need to access this formula, they're going to go an hour and a half away to the separate facility where they're going to get into the safe and they're going to take the formula out. But what happens is this is highly impractical for your employees. So they start making photocopies and now your secret <laughs> keys to the kingdom formula is on pieces of paper at Starbucks. Um, and that is a, an example of how not to protect a trade secret. So on the front end, it seems like you're being very reasonable, right? You've got your, your locked safe minimal access. It's a way, you know, it, but the way it actually works out in practicality is utter nonsense. You know, you might as well be passing it out on the, on the internet. 
Um, so you have two options there. One is either it really needs to be in a safe, in which case you've got to be serious about it and eliminate all the loopholes that are letting your employees take out and make photocopies of it. Or maybe it doesn't really need to be in a safe because if it wasn't important enough for you to put those, um, to, to close up those loopholes, then maybe you could make it a little easier for your employees to access it. So maybe it could be saved on a secure server so that just the employees who need to access it for their job can access it in a way that still protects it without making this temptation because employees are always going to want to do their job um, and, and figure out the best way to do their job. You know, they're not trying to be bad. They're not trying to hurt the company. They're trying to do their job and get their tasks done. Um, so just that that practical lens of looking at how people protect their trade secrets is often missed in actually implementing trade secret protection. Well, that's great. I, I think people can relate and appreciate those examples. So let's turn to some of the recent Supreme Court decisions, if we can, just to understand a little bit of how it affects or the lessons learned that people should pay attention to. Uh, one was the Jack Daniels versus VIP, kind of the whiskey versus a dog toy. Yep. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, the case was a, a dog toy that was made to look like um, a Jack Daniels bottle, and it was called Bad Spaniels. Um, and a lot of the hallmarks of a typical Jack Daniels bottle were present in this dog toy, so that it really was reminiscent of the Jack Daniels bottle that we all, everybody knows, it's very distinctive. Um, and, you know, what the Supreme Court said there was not, they really didn't, they didn't decide the merits. You know, trade trademark cases are always determined on the question of likelihood of confusion. Is a customer buying this dog toy going to think that it is affiliated really with Jack Daniels? Or are they going to think that it's a spoof of Jack Daniels? It's a parody of Jack Daniels. And of course, you know, the defendant, the Bad Spaniels dog toy manufacturer was arguing, anybody is going to know this is a parody. Anybody's going to know this is a spoof. Um, and the Supreme Court didn't answer that question. They, they, you know, they said this is a totality of the circumstances analysis, and it's going back below to resolve that question. What the Supreme Court dealt with was the argument made by the defendant that um, because this is a parody, it was protected by the First Amendment. And effectively, you never had to get to the question of likelihood of confusion because the First Amendment allowed this parody. And the Supreme Court said, no, um, no, this First Amendment does not protect you here. Uh, you still need to pass this likelihood of confusion analysis. It is possible that a consumer would think that you were somehow affiliated with Jack Daniels. Maybe unlikely, but you know that analysis stands and the First Amendment does not get you out of this. There are still places where that First Amendment protection does apply. Things like um, you know movies and TV shows, you see it come up a lot and the Supreme Court didn't change that. Um, but in connection with this type of parody arguments, it was really a pretty narrow issue that they decided. So it allows Jack Daniels to have brand extensions to dog toys in the future. If they wanted to, yes. But really it allows Jack Daniels to, um, you know, go back below and try to argue that a consumer would be confused, which, I, you know, personally I think is probably a tough sell. But um, the, the jury or judge will decide. Okay. And the other one came out was a decision that came out during the end of June, the end of the term. And there were a whole lot of other Supreme Court decisions that kind of took away the airspace from this one, and that was the uh, Hedtronic uh, international case dealing with the Lenham Act. Can you talk about that? And I guess my understanding is it changed 50 years of precedent that people were operating under and kind of how that changes and what lessons learned for kind of the front end, kind of the Matt's world of this, 
How could that have been done differently on the front end to kind of avoid this? Uh, yeah, and I think we're going to let Matt talk about this one a lot because you know, I think we looked at it <laughs> slightly differently. You know, to me, um, I didn't find the decision that surprising, both mm-hmm. from a, a the question of the specific facts, which Matt will talk about, um, and just looking at the act and sort of understanding where the Supreme Court has been, you know, in overturning other jurisprudence in IP law. I I think it was a it was not a surprising result to me, um, but. You know, as Matt will talk about, it, it really did overturn um, you know, a lot of jurisprudence that, that could have made the plaintiff in this case think that they were safe when, in fact, they were not. And it gives us a lot of good lessons yeah. on what not to do to protect your <laughs> trade secrets abroad or it trademarks sounds, abroad. Sorry, It sounds like those were blind spots for a number of companies yeah. that they didn't think about how to kind of go off and protect against that because of case law. So, Matt, I think talk, it, talk through that. I think they – I mean, I think that the plaintiff Hetronic in this case would would also say that. <laughs> but when you really look at what happened, um, I, I'm not sure that's a hundred. You know, I don't, I'm not sure I'm that sympathetic. But so we have a plaintiff who had a distributor uh, in Europe for a product, and it was a group. It was a group of defendants. It was like the owner of the distributor, the distributor, and some other some other companies that were all involved in this U.S. company producing a product and selling it in Europe. So they did all the work in Europe. Um, the, the distribution agreement ended and the European defendants just decided we're just going to keep making this product. We're going to use your trademark. We're going to sell it in Europe. And, you know, good luck. Uh, obviously the plaintiff here in the U.S. got upset about that and sued them. And it went to trial and the jury was asked, what are the damages for this infringing, you know, they're selling and using this trademark? At the time, uh, the, the sales that were subject to this jury verdict, of, of the sales, 97% of the sales were purely foreign sales. So that means that the defendants produced them and sold them to other European parties that did not affect the U.S. or come into the U.S. at all. There were 3% of the sales, I think, that... Um, they delivered to European uh, parties that they arguably probably knew was they were going to be sent to the U.S. and used in the U.S. because they had to, to comply with U.S. laws when it, in the contracts with those European parties. So there was some evidence uh, that there was U- U.S. use of this trademark by these foreign entities, but it was 3% of the total sales and, you know, it was indirect. So the... So the jury said, yeah, I mean, 100% of the sales, these are all infringing. Um, you're harming you know, this U.S. company by using their trademarks without authorization. And uh, you know they awarded damages based on 100% of the sales. They made us way up to the Supreme Court um, in that context for the most part. And there was also a permanent injunction issued by the lower court that the European parties could not sell uh, products and use this trademark worldwide. So it said you can't do this anywhere in the world. I think that part was not that surprising that that got overturned because, I mean, that is a very broad extraterritorial application of the Lanham Act, which, you know, as if, you know, rewind back to the beginning of this, when I said the IP is very jurisdictional and we have treaties with other parties saying, hey, you enforce your rights in your country, we'll deal with rights in our country. Um, So the fact that that injunction got overturned is not that surprising. Um, 
what is surprising is the the precedent that you're talking about. There's a case called Steele from, I think, 1952 that was discussed in this case. And ultimately, it was narrowed and distinguished on the fact pattern. Um, so they're, so the Supreme Court's kind of pushing it aside saying, yeah, but it's it's a diff- it's different. Um, I don't think they explained that well uh, why it was different because what you had in Steele was a U.S. citizen was importing parts for luxury watches into Mexico and selling them in Mexico, uh, and they were making their way back into the U.S. with from customers would you know come buy them, bring them back into the U.S., take them in for repair, that sort of thing. Uh, but it's it seemed like from that case and that fact pattern that there really wasn't specific conduct within the U.S. Mm-hmm. that contributed to the trademark use that was confusing. Uh, the court didn't think so in this case and said no i mean it was it there was some there was some us use and there was some us confusion so that case is different here we're talking about purely foreign use of a trademark uh with foreign customers this is not something that under our extraterritoriality jurisprudence at this point we should be extending uh our laws to to deal with this so really the 3% of the sales that made their way back into the U.S., you could look at that and say maybe you get damages on that, but the Lanham Act shouldn't be used for these European sales. Um, <clears throat> there is some extraterritoriality in the Lanham Act that isn't really an issue here, but is baked into the Lanham Act on purpose. So we've had amendments to the Lanham Act that say that you, know, you can look at f- overall kind of international fame of a mark to – have protection in advance in the U.S. Like if somebody's uh, really trading off that fame in the U.S., there are some things that a brand owner can do, um, and so that's sort of extraterritorial, but the, but not in this context. So so you so you back up to when this relationship was still going on. Um, there's a couple things that really should have happened that I don't see any evidence of having happened. <laughs> so. Um, I, it's not clear from the case whether the plaintiff in the U.S. owned trademark, formal trademark registrations, or you know they didn't formalize any IP in Europe that I could tell. And if they did, they didn't enforce it over there. So, re- so the plaintiff really, from a, like a you know strategic standpoint, they want to sue here in the U.S. because they're going to have to hire lawyers here. They're going to have to hire lawyers in Europe. They're going to have to travel to Europe to you know, deal with evidence and give depositions and things like that. So that is that is a much larger investment in this enforcement action. And it's going to take, you know, your return is going to be reduced, uh, obviously, because of the expenses. So um, perhaps they did have a case and decided we're just going to, you know, we're going to give this a go in, in the U.S. Or maybe they just did nothing and didn't really have their rights in the first place to enforce. So maybe it wasn't an option for them. But either way, they didn't end up in Europe to enforce rights. Um, and here where all of this activity was not in the U.S., um, you know, there's nothing you can do here. So so what should have Exxonix <clears throat> should have done overseas to protect if they're using a distributor and going through this process? What should they have done up front to avoid this litigation or the gray area of the litigation? So I haven't seen what kind of contractual relationship they had with these parties, but that you're going to start with the contractual relationship and say, "Hey, you're going to be our distributor. Um, this is how it's going to work. Uh, if this if this relationship ends, this is how that's going to work." And at the same time, 
you should be extending your rights into Europe and formalizing those rights in Europe. So I work with European Council all the time to take U.S. clients and their brands and their inventions and things and get them formalized in Europe because they're exploiting a market in in Europe, right? So if they didn't do that, and I don't I don't know honestly either way, um, they didn't really talk about it in the case, but if they didn't do that, that's definitely something that is much easier to do at the outset and say, hey, let's get some registrations and, you know, for a pittance compared to IP litigation costs, uh, you have a much, you have much more leverage, a bigger hammer to come into Europe and say, don't do what you're about to do uh, because, you know, we'll stop you. So it boils down to when you're thinking about doing something overseas, make sure your intellectual property is protected up front it's not just necessarily a contract lawyer, but making sure that you involve someone with a different lens mm-hmm. to make sure that you're protected and the risk reward scale. Yeah. yeah, we. I mean, we often collaborate with different, you know, different um, practice groups on, uh, you know, international business exploitation and of a market. Um, hey, you know, we need to bring in somebody in logistics and contracts and IP and make sure that. Make sure that we're doing all this. We work with foreign counsel who are experts in in that jurisdiction to help us do that as well. So, well, terrific. So, as we've talked through kind of the front end and then the litigation pieces, are there any other kind of war stories that would be good for our audience to understand or think about when they're evaluating their portfolio of potential intellectual property they might not be aware of? I, from a litigation standpoint, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that. Um, you know, you have to assume that if you're ever going to be in a situation where you're going to be enforcing your IP or, you know, you're determining what the risk is of a competitor enforcing their IP against you because companies find themselves in both situations, you have to assume that everything you do in analyzing that is likely to become public record in the litigation. And so what what happens is you see companies sometimes take very unfortunate approaches that that frankly might not have even seemed that unfortunate at the time right like you know for example a company um tries to anonymously buy a competitor's patent um because they know that there's a risk that it's going to be enforced against them um it might seem like a smart business decision but you you need to have somebody at the table who's thinking about how does that play to a jury right you have issues in patent litigation of willfulness where you willfully infringing the patent. And sometimes that involves looking at what did you do on the front end to make sure you weren't infringing the patent um, and how you go about that. Did you hire a neutral attorney and ask them to give you their best um, opinion on whether you were going to be infringing this patent or did you have um, somebody in-house do it in three hours on the back of a napkin or did you have somebody do it that you pay $10, 20000000 million a year to for IP litigation and you know, there's a good argument to be made that they're going to tell you what you want to hear, right? Those things that that are not really going to look like you were on the front end trying to determine whether or not you infringed in good faith, but really look more like you were trying to get the paperwork for somebody to say that you clearly didn't infringe so that you would have that later. That thing, Those things tend to tend to be obvious to juries. And so what I find in litigation is that that parties do things, parties say things um, that they do not anticipate a jury or a judge ever seeing, and the jury or judge will see it. So you have to, it's that sort of, you know, anything you say can and will be held against you, which is criminal, 
but is true for companies as well. I, my husband is afraid to put anything in email at this point in his life after being married to a litigator for 25 years. Um, that, you know, any emails you write, somebody could be looking at in litigation. Like, we're going to see everything you said to your coworkers via chat, depending on whether or not that's collectible. And not only are we going to see everything, but the worst possible spin that somebody could mm-hmm. put on what you did is going to be put on what you did. And so, that's, I mean, you mentioned that juries will see the obvious. Yeah. Sometimes it looks obvious, but it, it really didn't happen that way. But it just looks bad. And I think that on the front end, you need people that can spot that stuff and say, yeah. "Hey, you know, what really matters in an actual trial is you tell you're telling a story. There's a theme, and people want to people want to understand the often complicated facts that connect to their kind of world experience, right? So, how does how's this going to look? Yeah. The back end, right? Yeah. Or is the jury going to look at this and say, you know, you were trying to do the best you could, right? Which in in a lot of IP litigation, it's strict liability. It doesn't matter if you were trying to be good or trying to be bad. Um, but if you can make it look like somebody was trying to be bad, sometimes there's more money in it for yeah. the plaintiff. <laughs> so the goal is always, you know, make it look like the defendant was horrible and all the communications are going to come out and be interpreted in just the worst possible way. And it, um, even after you know twenty plus years of doing this, it still shocks me what people put in writing. And I've had emails where you know we always joke about trying to find the smoking gun piece of information. And um, I had a case where there was literally an email that somebody said, "This is probably going to be the smoking gun." <laughs> it's like if literally if you'd searched for smoking gun, you would have found it. Um, just that type of silly thing on the front end. Um, you know, I think if people roll back to the the kind of basics of, you know, train your employees to to look out for basic IP issues and you know, protect things like trade secrets, have an hour long conversation with somebody who does IP law who can like at least issue spot for you where mm-hmm. some of the problems are going to be. You're going to be better off if you find yourself in my world. Right. It's it's always cheaper to talk to Matt um, or people like Matt. You know, Matt can get you. Dozens of pieces of IP, dozens upon dozens of pieces of IP for the cost of one infringement litigation because you didn't dot an I or cross a T. And we can't keep you out of all kinds of litigation. Like we said, sometimes, you know, smart people disagree. (laughs) Sometimes you get sued for something that you shouldn't get sued for and it takes a while to get out of it. You know, litigation in the U.S. is expensive and it would be a whole other podcast, some of the flaws there. But um, having those conversations on the front end, spending that little bit of money on the front end can save you exponentially on the back end. You know, people spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on litigation that could have been avoided with a two-hour conversation with a lawyer. So in short, Matt is risk mitigation. Yes, Matt yes. is risk mitigation. That's the language I talk to people too. You know, just <laughs> hey, look, you need to look at your risks from this perspective. You, know, you should. You, there's a lot of perspectives. You should be. That's how you, as a business owner. Uh, should or you know executive or operator or whatever should be speaking with your attorneys that are advising a business because that's what that's what we're here for identify risks protect assets etc well terrific i think this has been really helpful now we're moving on to the blind spot insider segment of the show this is where our guests answer questions that have been submitted by our listeners this allows the listeners to submit questions, get different insights, specifically to questions that they had that may not otherwise be covered in our episode. If you're not a Blindspot Insider, please go and register at riskblindspots.com, plural, because we all have them, riskblindspots.com, to be able to submit questions for our guests, to listen to the responses, and to get exclusive content. 
So with that, here's our first question. Rachel and Matthew, you've really provided some great information here today that our listeners are going to find valuable and can be sparks for their thought process, how they're looking at their business, how they're contemplating kind of with business partners or whatever, investors or uh, with their bankers as they think about how to mitigate, defend, et cetera. So I want to thank you for that. So to recap for our listeners, the key takeaways from this discussion really about how to protect and defend uh, your business uh, with your IP rights, your intellectual protection, intellectual property protection. And also uh, we have the thoughtful responses to our Blind Spot Insider segment. So uh, Rachel and Matthew, thank you uh, for taking the time today and sharing your insights. It'll be very helpful. Thank you for tuning in and joining this What the Risk podcast, designed to be a safe space to learn about risk, how to think about risk, and how to expose business blind spots. This podcast is about empowering you as business leaders to reduce the stress of the unknown risks in your business, as well as the stress of decision-making by being able to identify and mitigate potential risks through the right level of due diligence. So here are three quick next steps that I need you to do. Hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to make sure you don't miss future episodes and give us a five-star rating. Share the podcast with a peer. Both of you will gain visibility to what you didn't know existed in the blind spots. And go to riskblindspots.com, that's plural because we all have them, riskblindspots.com, to become a blind spot insider. You'll get exclusive advance notice of the next two episodes, so you can submit questions, topics, and suggestions for our show. And tell us if we have any blind spots. Continue with us on this journey as we learn to ask the right questions, expose potential pitfalls, and turn those what-the-risk moments into I've-got-this victories.